Hello, I'm Chandra, the fireball-throwing pyromaniac. And I'm Jace Bellerin, the white, blue, glowy eye, glowy hands planeswalker. And welcome to Player One Bias. Alright, so in case you couldn't tell from our intro, uh, in this episode we'll be talking about Magic the Gathering, uh, a game that uh, we both just played right before this podcast, you know, as a little bit of refresher into our research and what we're doing, uh, and both play fairly consistently as of right now. Yeah, I've been all over Magic for probably the last six to eight months. Yeah, and you finally finally got me going into it a little bit more here recently. Yeah, you might get sucked in, man. Yeah, it's... Uh... That's something we'll, we'll, we'll definitely hit on in this episode. Magic can uh, suck you in, that is for sure. So we'll start off with a little bit of history on our creator, Richard Garfield. Uh, so he was a doctoral candidate in combinatorial mathematics at University of Pennsylvania. Uh, and at this point, he was designing games for fun. Uh, it was something he enjoyed, it was a passion, he loved playing board games with his friends, and so he started getting into designing with them. Uh, so he met with Peter Atkinson, the CEO of Wizards of the Coast at the time. Um, this was pretty early on uh, in Wizards of the Coast history. Um, and they, they didn't have you know the, their real big product, Magic the Gathering, yet. Um, and it was really a board game company. Uh, and so Garfield pitched a board game, uh, which was called Robo Rally. Uh, however, Atkinson thought it was extremely complicated, uh, would cost too much money, and be very hard to produce. Uh, so Atkinson turned Garfield down. He said he loved the game, uh, but Wizards just did not have the resource to produce it, uh, to produce the game at the time. Um, so he came back with kind of a counteroffer, which is weird. He, typically, uh, the person who is receiving a pitch doesn't pitch back. Um, but that's how much he liked Robo Rally, and that's how much he liked what Garfield was doing. Uh, so he said, hey, if you design us a game right now that is a card game, it's extremely portable, uh, and can cater to uh, the, the people that are currently playing our games and are currently shopping with us, uh, which are people that are at conventions, uh, if you can make us this game, we will publish it for you. So This is kind of interesting to me. Um, one, because like, as of... Now, Richard Garfield is this really famous game creator. Um, so this is, I guess, obviously before he has that fame, but Adkinson saw something, you know, in his pitch that made him think, oh, this guy, we need him to make a game for us. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, obviously he's a, a, a rather large nerd. You know, he's a doctoral candidate in combinatorial mathematics who designs board games on the side. Uh, and he must have just had some some pretty good ideas, which we've definitely seen now. So uh, he, he took this idea that Atkinson had, uh, and he based it off of a game that he had kind of already developed and already had some playtesting in. And when I say some, uh, that might even be an exaggeration. Uh, so he based it off of his original game, which was called Five Magics. Uh, however, this was never a single game. Um, it, it changed constantly uh, in, in every aspect. It, sometimes it was a card game. Sometimes it was a board game. Um, sometimes it, it, it had one set of rules and then he'd completely change it up for the next. Um, so he had concepts and ideas that came from it, uh, 
uh, and also kind of the name and the themes that were going along with it. Um, and Garfield has said that he's never thought Five Magics would be publishable uh, because it's never been one game. It was kind of this pit of ideas that he would throw stuff into and pull stuff out of. So Garfield took these ideas uh, and started developing what we will come to know as Magic the Gathering. Uh, and he started playtesting it with his fellow PhD students at UPenn. Um, so more of that nerd scene, guys who are probably going to these conventions and who might be playing Magic in the future. Uh, so he had a really good group of people around him to be able to playtest it. He then turned around, pitched that game to Atkinson, uh, and Atkinson, who you know kind of started really the idea, immediately agreed to produce it. Um, and this is where we get Magic the Gathering uh, undergoing its first release on August 5th of 1993. Um, however, uh, it was not originally called Magic the Gathering. Through playtesting, uh, er, Garfield excuse me, and his friends all called it Magic. Um, but when they went to publish the game, their lawyer informed them that the name Magic in and of itself could not be trademarked. Yeah, that's too common of a name. Uh, yeah, they it, it was already uh, claimed through multiple different games, uh, and I, I believe there was music or something else that they were uh, having issues with. Um, but it was way too generalized, and they weren't they weren't able to patent that. Um, so they ended up choosing the name Mana Clash. Um, but despite this, even though that was kind of the official name before release, uh, everyone continued to call it magic um they couldn't get couldn't get away from that name so they consulted their lawyer again and said hey we really really want to go with the name magic what do we need to do uh so their lawyer lawyer told him you have to make it a little bit more specific you got to change up the naming uh branch out from that super generalized name and that's where we got magic the gathering and this is uh the idea of original magic the gathering is kind of a meme in the magic community uh, particularly if someone's playing like some really degenerate card combo or something like that, you know, somewhere people would say like, "Oh man, that's really broken. That needs to be banned." Uh, and the joke is always, "Oh, this is this is original magic, the way Richard Garfield intended." Yes, yeah. <laughs> there were there were some cards that are extremely expensive today uh, that came out of this original set, uh, both rare and both incredibly powerful. Uh, and as we'll get into later, our band in a lot of different playsets. So Wizards uh, was finally able to patent the game in 1997, uh, and they were also able to patent some of the mechanics that came along with the game, which I thought was crazy. I did not think you would be able to do this. Uh, so it's pretty wonder, interesting that they were able to. Yeah, it's it's weird. I guess, but we like we grew up in an age where there were lots of trading card games. Like there was Pokemon when we were younger, which we never really got into, and there was like a Dragon Ball Z card game, uh, and then there was Yu-Gi-Oh. Yeah, and like Magic was always there. Um, so I wonder, just because you know we're used to card games being, they're really common now, but maybe in 1997 the concept of a trading card game wasn't. No, yeah, this was revolutionary. I mean, they really they they, so they, they came up with off. something, yeah, that was brand new. So I guess like the patent office just looked at it as like a game type and didn't really think about it being a game genre. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that definitely makes sense. Uh, but this definitely played to the advantage of Wizards of the Coast. That is for sure. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so specifically, one of the main mechanics that they were able to patent uh, was changing the orientation of cards uh, to denote use. 
and then selecting a, a single deck uh, for play from a larger pool of cards. Um, and like, like we kind of talked about, the, the patent has received a lot of crit criticism uh, for the extremely large scope that it covered, specifically reaching into these mechanics. Yeah, I mean, I don't even know. Can they really enforce a lot of aspects of this now? Now, I, I'm not entirely sure, and I don't know that the patent still stands either. Uh, but okay. immediately after, as we'll see, they're, they're, uh, Wizards took legal action against Nintendo uh, for their Pokemon card game uh, due to these mechanics. It was settled out of court, uh, but the terms were never disclosed, so hard to tell how well uh, Wizards was able to enforce this patent uh, without seeing some sort of number uh, from what they right. got for Nintendo. But And I feel like nowadays, if you were to go like, if you were to sue Konami or something and say, oh, look, they pick a deck from a larger pool of available cards. You know, this is copyright infringement. That wouldn't fly. Right. I feel like that would just get... I'm not a lawyer, but I feel like that would just get slapped down. Surely, I, 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 this patent can't stand anymore, or Wizards must not enforce it or something based on, you know, all the, the, the card games that are out there and all these mechanics that are used right. very consistently. So early on in the creation, um, they did not advertise the game at all because they couldn't keep up with the demand for it. So based on that playtesting and everyone was enjoying it so much, um, they, they, it was just flying off the shelves. It was super popular at conventions, uh, started out fairly locally, uh, but expanded very, very rapidly, and they, they, they couldn't keep up with it at all. And you can tell that they didn't expect this kind of popularity because the earliest versions of the game were really incredibly unbalanced for the way people were playing it. Uh, the creators believe that card rarity would be an actual limiting factor that would prevent people from owning multiple copies of a rare card. And so the power level of these cards was just off the charts. And they didn't expect that people would spend lots of money collecting like multiple copies of these rare cards. So they had no idea what they were signing up for, essentially. Right. This this first printing sold out immediately. Uh, so even that though the, the cards were rare, they were all out there. Uh, also, they immediately had to reprint it in 1993 because they sold out so quickly. Uh, and then by the end of 94, so one year, or I guess two full years after release, a billion cards had already been sold. Yeah, so, it's wild. Yeah, that, it, even though they tried to prevent it with that rarity, just the sheer amount of cards that were out there, certain people who were dedicated could get a large enough amount of those rare cards that they would be very strong decks. Yeah, and at the time, there weren't really rules about how many you could have. Right, yeah. They hadn't thought about any of that. They just assumed rarity would be an actual limiting factor. Right, but the popularity of the game kind of negated that. So Magic originally attracted a lot of Dungeons & Dragons players. Um, hit, hitting on that same fantasy thread, uh, a lot of common themes throughout it, uh, cool artwork, that kind of stuff really, really meshed with it. Also, a lot of D&D players go to conventions, want a card game they can play in between, you know, whether it's panels or, or booths or whatever it happens to be. Um, so got a lot, a lot of D&D players and expanded both bases uh, fairly significantly. Uh, and the instant success of Magic spawned a ton of spinoffs with sci-fi fantasy card games uh, very, very quickly. 
uh, including one uh, Jihad, later renamed Vampire the Eternal Struggle by Wizards of the Coast. And I wonder Potter. why they renamed that one. Yeah, I, I, I wonder if that uh, had to be changed what? in a more politically correct era. What an unfortunate name. Yes. Holy it, cow, yeah. To note, it is spelled with a Y, J-Y-H-A-D, uh, as opposed to an I, uh, but still not the greatest name. <laughs> uh, and also, you have the Harry Potter trading card game produced by Wizards of the Coast, which mechanically is incredibly similar to yes. Magic I, the I, Gathering. I remember playing that as kids. We had We had quite a few of those, actually. I still have them. <laughs> oh, do you really? Yeah, sit in a box downstairs. That's pretty awesome. Harry Potter was was huge for us, as I'm sure it was for for lots of other sci-fi fantasy nerds as well. So um, after after these first sets that were printed and reprinted, and, and now we're at the end of 1944 or 1994, excuse me. Um, expansions and revisions of the core set are released approximately four times a year. Uh, that that is very fairly consistent uh hitting on that and we'll go a little more in depth here um so starting in 2009 uh it it changed to one revision of the core set uh, and three expansions uh, which are called a block uh, were released a year so you had four different releases there as well uh so you're staying on that four times a year and then in 2015 uh they changed over to no core sets uh, but they had two larger sets uh, released biannually. Uh, and then they, they majorly revised uh, Magic itself uh, with the revised edition in 1994. Uh, so this changed a little bit of the, the brokenness and moved past that. Changed the mechanics slightly to make it a more balanced game. Uh, the classic edition in 1999. And then Magic 2010, which was released late in 2009. And they've actually gone back to releasing a core set and three expansions a year. Uh, that is since correct, 20, yes. Very recently, they've released a 2019 core set uh, based on feedback from uh, players of the game. Yeah, how they were liking to, uh, to get their cards and updates on them there. Uh, and then so also in, in the 8th edition, uh, which was 2003, uh, there was a major visual redesign. Uh, in 1996, a Pro Tour was established by Wizards of the Coast, which we'll talk about a little bit more later. Um, and then, kind of significant on Wizards of the Coast, in 1999, like we've talked about in a previous episode, they were purchased by Hasbro. Um, changed the company a little bit, but Wizards was still strong, still doing well. Uh, and then Magic Online was released in 2002 and updated in 2008. And that is specifically MTGO, uh, which we will also definitely hit on later. Yeah, these are basically four really big landmarks in Magic's history that are are all going to get talked about as we go through this, go through our material here. Absolutely. Um, So I think let's hit on, you know, just a little bit of where we got into Magic, what what, what we do with it now, and all that kind of stuff. So I know for me... Uh, my introduction to playing card games was a little bit of Pokemon uh, trading card, but we didn't really play that game as it was meant to be played, just kind of collected the cards, if I remember. That, or that's how it was for me. And we, I don't even say we, we didn't even really collect the cards. 
Um, I mean, I think at one we were into Pokemon, so we got like a starter kit at some point, and then maybe once or twice got a booster pack. But you know, like mom and dad weren't super into trading card games, right? Especially no. when we were like eight, you know, like eight years old or whatever. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so where I really got into those trading card games was Yu-Gi-Oh, uh, which the mechanics are slightly different, um, but but to me it really seems like just like a straight ripoff of Magic, and instead of you know like changing it mechanically or making it a better game, what they really did was just like oh are uh, uh, like you know your power and attack and defense and stuff on Magic cards three. We're going to make them 3,000, and it's going to be, like, a 1,000 times cooler. Yeah, you effectively have the same resolution in Yu-Gi-Oh! It's just everything's in increments of 500 instead of 1. Right, um, right. Now, I guess I will give it a little bit of credit. Um, there are some mechanical differences that do make them play out pretty differently. Um, and uh, mostly to Yu-Gi-Oh!'s detriment, the way the company who runs the game, Konami, manages the game and releases sets and, and goes about balancing the game uh, is much, much poorer than the way Wizards of the Coast does it. And so in my opinion, that makes it, you know, an inferior product. But this was also really my introduction to trading card games that had rules and you know that i i learned the rules and played the game rather than just like oh these are cool cards absolutely yeah this is this is the first trading card game i i played by the rules and 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 understood what was going on and had strategy now i think you were the first person i knew to have magic cards and i think you uh, you didn't really play it, but I think it seems like a friend gave them to you in elementary school or something. Yeah, it was along uh, the thread of Yu-Gi-Oh! And we sure. were playing, and then I, I really have, I don't remember who, but someone had magic cards, and I kind of ended up with a couple of them, but never had any extended amount or decks or anything like that. Yeah, I, just, I think at some point I looked... I was in your room and I saw them and, and the art is very neat and I, I think visually the card design is, is interesting um, and the art style at that time was very cool. Absolutely. I remember looking at it and be like, oh, I'm interested in these cards, but I, you know, I couldn't figure out the rules just from looking at the cards. Yeah, definitely not. And then a few years later, I was in high school and I kind of remember, I, we'd started playing D&D, I think. It was around that same time, and I was like, oh yeah, like I know Magic the Gathering is this like nerdy thing that people are interested in, and I'm into nerdy things, so I should check out this card game. And I picked up a couple of starter decks from Target or something, uh, and they came with a rule booklet, and we played like once or twice, you know? Yeah, well, um, in, infrequently, a few, a few times. Yeah, and uh, then eventually, I guess I really started to get into the game in college. I had some friends who we played D&D &D together and they were into magic. And so we would go to like draft nights at the local game store and do that kind of thing. And there's, there's multiple online, I don't want to, I don't want to call them programs. They're not officially sanctioned programs, but where you can physically manipulate images of cards and kind of like pretend to play with proxies online. Right. Uh, so right. that's how I really started to get into magic. Yeah. Uh, it, and 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 that's definitely definitely where I started to get in. You had a couple decks. We played a little bit. I kind of understood it. Once you got to college, you started building out some decks. 
you went to Clockwork Gaming. Um, yeah, Clockwork. Yeah, and Shout started out, playing I a guess. bit, and then got me into it. You know, I, I got a starter set, um, worked through that. Actually, I, I think I got a core set, um, and built a couple decks out of it, and yeah, started playing. And then, uh, I guess the last year or so for me, um, I had a, I had some kind of routine operation. I had a colonoscopy, but you have to do this colonoscopy prep. Oh yes, <laughs> which, which kind of sucks. Um, so a few months prior, I had found out about a format of the game that was very affordable and this is usually a big barrier of entry to, to trading card games and particularly magic for people is the cost of cards but there was a format out there like specifically for people who didn't want to spend money on it so it was very cheap to play every card that's legal is one cent and i was knew i was going to have a lot of time on my hands so that's when i really like started getting into it and playing it's when i i had all this time where i was just sitting around doing colonoscopy prep yep where I was like, yeah, like I'm, I'm really gonna start soaking up this, and try to play online like competitively at a certain level. Yeah, and absolutely. So I get sucked in there, and then that was good, and I was doing that for a few months. Uh, ended up building a deck in real life and taking it to some local Friday night tournaments, and then uh, Wizards of the Coast released a new digital online product called Magic Arena, uh, and that's been a fantastic experience for me and so i've been playing almost daily since Absolutely. i've managed to suck uh player two in here as well i think yes definitely definitely i've i've been playing uh, over the past couple of weeks really been getting into arena and playing there uh, and that's something i think magic does extremely well um there are expensive ways to play you can spend a lot of money on these great cards and play in you know these different formats but they also have ways that you can play without spending a ton of money, which, like you said, is a huge barrier to trading card games. Whether that's yeah. Arena, which is uh, you know mainly free, uh, way to play Magic, or whether it's uh, the format that you play where every card costs a penny, called Penny Dreadful, um, things like that. Or, or, or even uh, a different format that doesn't allow some of those stronger cards that are like super-duper expensive. Sure. It, it's There's a lot a of... Go ahead. Uh, it's definitely a way they draw in players and have been able to stay so large and, and, and growing really well. And a lot of that credit doesn't even really go to Wizards. Um, Penny Dreadful and some of these other like cheap formats have been fan-made. Like the more casual formats or the more budget formats have been where fans stepped in and were like, hey, you know, we can, there's something we can do it's not as expensive and we're going to make the rule set and then wizards would recognize and go okay yeah like that's a format that's cool you can do that absolutely um, that's what that is what wizards have done well and while there have been periods where they they haven't done that uh they've been relatively short they do recognize uh that their players and, and the people who are at conventions and are at magic tournaments drive so much of what they do uh so they really listen to them and adapt from what the players are doing uh, so th there's been multiple times that, you know, diversity, whether that be, you know, racial or, or gender diversity, uh, that they've, they've had intentional outreach on whether that is design of cards, um, you know, different sets, whatever, that they've really uh, heard feedback from the community and made changes. Sure. Yeah. They, they are a pretty responsive company, I would say. 
Definitely, definitely. Uh, e- even after being taken over by Hasbro, Wizard, sure. Wizards of the Coast really, really stay on top of that. So uh, this is something, I guess at this point, we ought to just talk about the gameplay for people who aren't super familiar with the game. Absolutely. So you know what we're right talking in. about. Um, so the basic concept of the game uh, is each player is, is basically like a wizard. Uh, you're someone called a planeswalker. Uh, and so in the, the universe of the game, you're someone who can travel between all these different worlds. And you use your powers and your connections with all these different worlds to cast spells and summon creatures and use these magical artifacts that you've collected and seen across these different worlds to defeat your opponent, another planeswalker. Uh, And so your eventual goal is to reduce their life total to zero. There are other win conditions that exist, such as what's known as milling or or decking your opponent, where they run out of cards to draw, Uh, or there's poison count. There's a few other win conditions, like some specific cards will make you win under certain conditions. But in general, you're trying to kill the other planeswalker so your deck oh go ahead and to note you typically start out with 20 life so you try to take them from 20 life to zero life yeah most formats you start at 20 so your decks consist of 60 cards and in tournament level play you have a 15 card sideboard which are cards that you can swap into your deck after the first game or first couple of games to kind of adapt your strategy to the strategy your opponent is playing. And I think this is one of the mechanics that makes Magic such a strong game. It's very difficult to balance a card game and have lots of unique strategies, but if you let players make kind of fine-tuned adjustments and make smart decisions with this sideboard, then it lets them react to all these different strategies, and that's something that other trading card games like Pokemon are missing. Absolutely. Uh, there, are, there are different counters that exist, uh, and, and so this is a way for you to get around that. If you're playing someone who has the, you know, the direct counter, or, or, or in some sense of that, uh, to your deck, you can make changes that you've accounted for in your sideboard in between games. So in a best of one, this doesn't really come into play, um, if you're just like playing with a friend or whatever, uh, but in like tournament level play, where where it's a best of three or a best of five, uh, this this is an incredibly important. Allows for a ton more strategy, uh, and really makes you build the deck well. Yes, yeah, sideboarding decisions are a really crucial part of the game, and it kind of helps separate people who understand the format and the deck they're playing versus, you know, you can't just go and download a deck list from online unless you understand what cards you're supposed to kind of change in and out depending on your matchup. So there's an extra layer of stuff you can really sink your teeth into. It requires a level of skill uh, and a level of strategy that means you can't just have powerful cards and win. You have to know what's going on. Yeah, exactly. So another kind of unique feature of Magic is the resource of the game. There are cards called land cards and this is what allows you to cast your spells. So you can play one land a turn, and on your turn, you tap the land. That's one of those patented things that we were talking about earlier. You turn it sideways, and that produces a mana from that land, and you can use that to cast the rest of your cards. But if you have a card that requires more mana than you have lands, you're just kind of out of luck. And this was a point of confusion for me when I started playing. Um, some of the words that are used in magic 
uh, aren't always easy to understand when people pronounce them. So for the long, longest time, I thought the land card, spelled L-A-N-D, like literally a piece of land, uh, were LAN cards, like a local area network. Uh, yeah, dude, you gotta get those Wi-Fi cards. Yeah, so I, I definitely uh, pronounced that wrong for quite some time. And it's not really a concept that exists in any other game. So, yeah, it's, you don't go like, oh, yeah, lands, right? Like, my resource, I, I get it. Yeah, yeah, uh, it, it was, you, you have to know what it is. So your spell cards have different types, and they also have, so there's creatures like we talked about, then there's more traditional spells like fireball or things that let you draw cards or something like that. Now, the interesting mechanic is that spells have different speeds. So... Most of your cards can only be played when it's your turn, during your main phase of your turn. But some special spells and abilities can be activated anytime you have the resources available and a certain triggering condition is met. So, uh, for example, maybe I have a fireball and player two here uh, decides to attack me with a creature and I don't want to get hit by the creature. So on his turn, if I have the land available, I can say I hit your creature with a fireball. It's an instant speed. And so this allows for interaction on your opponent's turn. So even if it's not my turn, I can be paying attention to what's going on. In fact, I need to because I may still be playing cards on his turn under certain conditions. Right. I, this is... Uh, it, it makes you continue to pay attention, makes you understand what's going on, uh, and it also allows for these these mind games. Uh, if I leave these, if I leave resources, if I leave lands open and still have cards in my hand, you have to think and worry. Okay, does he have something that can kill my attacking monster? Or if I play a card, does he have something that can cancel or negate it? Uh, it it really focuses on that strategy and allows for that continuous play. And where it gets really interesting is when I react to something he does, but then he has a card that can react to what I'm doing, and you end up with this, what they call the stack in Magic, where you have all these cards that are in play, and they get stacked on top of each, and you resolve them from last one played to first one played. So there was a pretty good example of that uh, when we were playing right before this podcast, actually, where I had a creature that can make itself stronger, and I waited to use the ability until player two here decides to destroy it with a lightning bolt. And then I activated the ability, which made it strong enough to survive the lightning bolt. Where if I had done it in reverse order, if I had activated it first and he attempts to, then he can destroy it with a lightning bolt before it gets stronger. And then I'm, I'm my creature's dead. And this, so is, this is really intricate. Exactly, yeah, and it, it is a unique mechanic to magic, that stack and, and how you go through uh, the actions, the, the latest played to first played. Uh, that, that, that pathway is unique. Kind of creates this, you know, who blinks first uh, stare down. Absolutely. So because lands are a important resource and these are actual cards you have to include in your deck, there's always the opportunity for you to not draw lands or draw too many and not be able to play cards. So uh, throughout its history, Magic has instituted various versions of a mulligan rule, which lets you throw back your opening hand in exchange for a new one, usually at some penalty. So originally there was no mulligan, but in that first revision of the game in 1994, if you open a land with 
or excuse me, open a hand with all lands or no lands at all, then you can show your opponent, put it back, and you draw a new hand of seven cards. Now, this obviously doesn't happen very often, and a hand with opening hands typically con or consists of seven cards. Uh, so if you have six lands and you know one other card, it's still not very good, or, or vice versa. So they institute a new mulligan, which became known as the Paris Mulligan, because they first demo it at the uh, Paris Pro Tour, where you can decide to mulligan whenever you want, regardless of what's in your hand. But each time you do it, you draw one less card. So you start with seven, don't like it, you can ship it back and draw six new ones. If you don't like it, you can send it back again, but this time you only get five. Now, that was the rule for a very long time, but in 2015, they sort of realized that this was still a very punishing mechanic and can sometimes lead to really uninteresting gameplay, particularly at the competitive level. So they introduced the Vancouver Mulligan, uh, demoed at the Vancouver Pro Tour, where you still choose, you get one less card each time you mulligan, but you get to look at the top card of your deck and decide to either keep it on top or put it on bottom. So this kind of helps you smooth out your draw for the first turn if you decide to mulligan. And I really like this change. This feels really good to me. Absolutely. Uh, this, this, this mulligan... I, I think keeps it fairly balanced. Um, it Mulligans does put you at a disadvantage uh, immediately based on the fact that you do just have less cards. But the ability to scry and try to smooth out your, your opening hand uh, is very beneficial. Yeah, it makes that first one a little less punishing. And if you send your hand back and get back another one that's still not very good, but you get a look at the top card of your deck and, and choose to draw it, you know, keep it on top or not, like that can help balance that out. Now, though, Wizards has decided that maybe they should look at trying to go even further. And so uh, here in a couple of weeks at the London Pro Tour, or now known as Magic Fest, they're going to try what could be known as the London Mulligan, where... Each time you mulligan, you draw seven cards, and then you put cards back on the bottom of your, your deck based on the number of times you've mulliganed. So first, you get seven in your opening hand. You can put it back, draw seven more, and then you get to keep six, but you get to choose which of those seven you don't keep. So it's even more flexibility. You still get to look at seven every time, and you can kind of pick and sculpt the six or five cards you have remaining to make sure it's still a functional hand. But I think this so, goes along with kind of how how magic is right now. There's a lot of like quick combo decks and stuff. And if you if you don't have those, you know, combo cards that you need, if you don't have this specific set, then it, it's very unlikely that you will win with that deck. Um, so I think it's kind of playing towards having the right cards in your hand and keeping games interesting. And this is a uh, sort of an interesting discussion. So there's people are concerned that maybe this skews things too much in favor of decks that are playing a combo so there are some decks that exist and we'll get more into kind of the different deck styles here in a minute but there's some that look for a specific three or four card you know two or three cards and then with those two or three cards they have a very powerful engine that lets them win the game very quickly where there are other decks what people like to call fair decks that just play kind of like good value-oriented cards. And it doesn't really matter. They're not looking for a specific one or two cards. 
in their hand. They just want a good mix of cards. And so this, this new mulligan rule really heavily favors combo-style decks. So people, there's some concern that maybe in these extended formats where all these cards are available that you're just going to get these really degenerate combos mulliganing very aggressively and then still being able to pull off their combo in the early turns. So yeah, time will tell. We'll have yeah, to wait and yeah, see. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I definitely think it favors those combo decks. Um, and based on kind of what I've seen of the higher level magic playing, that that's kind of where it's at. There's some major, major combos that can be devastating. Certainly. This kind of this concept kind of stems from Richard Garfield's original five magics game idea, or at least a portion of it. Uh, but in Magic itself, there are five colors, uh, and each one of these colors has their own characteristic. And so your your spells, like your creatures and everything, will be assigned to one or more of those colors and will, will require uh, a resource of one or more of those colors to play. And so depending on what color or colors these cards have usually helps define their characteristics. So uh, first color is red. And this is a very offensive color, and it's typically focused on speed and damage at the detriment of defense. So red creatures usually can attack the first turn they're played. They typically have more attack than defense. Uh, a lot of red spells don't necessarily give you an advantage. Uh, like a lot of, they don't have a traditional draw spell. Typically you draw a card and also discard a card. So it lets you sort of like burn through what you have available very quickly, but it doesn't give you more. It's not a, it's not a color of like sustaining a long drawn out play. It's like, go, go, go quick and hope you win. Uh, next color white likes to accumulate lots of little small threats, lots of little creatures and together they overwhelm their opponent. And so white typically has a lot of cards that have synergy like one white card will buff the other white cards or maybe they all buff each other and so with there's just one or two it's not that scary but if you have four or five of them all of a sudden it's this really like big threatening wall um they also typically fo focus on removing threats by like uh locking them down or removing them from the game rather than actually physically destroying them blue is a controller permission color so blue has a lot of effects that counter cards your opponent is trying to play. Uh, they also have lots of cards and abilities that let you draw more cards. You can bounce cards back to your opponent's hands. And typically blue is just sort of messing with the way your opponent wants to play the game. You have lots of flying creatures. You have lots of things that you can play on instant speed, which means you can play it on your opponent's turn. Traditionally, blue is also the best color in Magic, especially in early editions. It was just far and away had the strongest cards. And it's also a lot of times people's least favorite color to play against, particularly newer players. Green is all about ramping up your resources really quickly and then playing giant stompy creatures. Green is like, if you want to play a really big dinosaur with like massive attack and defense and just kind of crush your trample over your opponent, that's green. And so green is often the color that people are attracted to when they first get into the game because it just has all the cool dinosaurs and creatures and that kind of thing. Uh, and black is an interesting one. It features a lot, lots of creature destruction, lots of mechanics that interact with your graveyard, maybe bringing things back from, your, from the dead. 
debuffs enemies a lot, and it also frequently uses your life total as a resource. So a lot of black cards let you exchange your life to draw cards or maybe buff a creature or play a creature. So it plays around with this idea of you know power at any cost. Now some cards are, and really what a lot of people's favorite cards are multicolored. So they will feature a combination, you need to have resources from a combination of colors, and it could be two, it could be three, there's some crazy ones that are five color. And so these cards typically reflect some combination of these different personalities. Absolutely. They're, they're, they mesh them really well. It could be, you know, a red-white. So it's a, it's a smaller monster uh, that can represent, uh, you know, very offensive uh, categories, whether that's, you know, it, it'll then buff a bunch of other small creatures that all can attack immediately or, or whatever. Yeah, it, it really meshes them uh, quite well. And I think you hit it on the head with blue there. That's definitely something I experienced uh, when first entering Magic. Um, it, it doesn't allow you to play your deck the way you want to play it. It cancels things, or it destroys things, or it makes things unusable, and and really just completely hinders your playstyle uh, in every way. It's it's typically a frustrating deck to play against. Yeah, when you're a new player, you're usually your first interaction with blue is you're playing some kind of deck that involves green in some capacity, and you're like, all right, like turn four, turn five, I get to play my big, powerful creature. I'm really excited about it, and it looks really cool. Uh, and then the guy playing blue is like, oh, no, I counter that. And that's it. It fizzles, goes to the graveyard. You're like, what? But that's not fair. Yeah, you this, just... is, this is a cool dinosaur. You just, like, played on my turn. And, you know, yeah, the classic man. blue archetype is play my blue land, an island. Island, go, your turn. And then they just sit and, and mess with what you're doing on your turn. Right, you... You spend all that time building up all these lands, all these little monsters, you know, whatever it happened to be, and then like you're like, all right, here, here's the the thing I win with, and then it's gone. So this is a pretty good segue into the different styles of decks you can play in Magic: The Gathering. Uh, so there are sort of these these styles are sort of big archetypes, like really broad strokes that describe what your deck's strategy is. So we've talked about blue a lot. Blue is typically involved in a lot of combo decks. Or excuse me, that's incorrect. A lot of control decks. So the goal of your deck is to just kind of mess with what your opponent's doing. You either deny them playing spells. Control decks also typically feature a lot of removal. So if you can't counter your opponent's threats when they play them, then you can destroy them or remove them from the game afterwards. And then eventually at some point you have a win condition that you can resolve while still maintaining control of the game, and then you slowly just kind of grind your opponent to dust. So most of the control decks that I've, I've seen and experienced are either blue or, or, or blue-white. Um, white also contributes to a little bit of that control while also adding, you know, typically some life gain uh, or, or, or some kind of uh, monster addition. Black is uh, often considered, can be a consider the control color as well if it's paired with blue or white because black will bring a lot of removal to the table so if you don't counter it you can always just murder it with your black card um, in contrast to control you have aggro decks where your goal is just to play lots of really uh, lots of creatures 
and just overwhelm your opponent in three or four turns. This is a lot of times associated with colors like red or white, and sometimes even like a mono green deck, where the goal is just to trample, go quickly, destroy your opponent. Absolutely, and I, I, I think uh, today, uh, one of the decks I was playing, it was a blue-green, um, definitely aggro, has a couple yes. creatures that can attack immediately, um, it mainly creature-based, the creatures all buff each other, uh, and the goal is to get them all down as quick as possible at a low cost, and then attack and win. Yeah, 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 Mer Merfolk Tribal is absolutely an aggro deck, and it's interesting, it's, it's green-blue, so... Kind of the blue aspect of that deck is a lot of those merfolk creatures have effects that mess with what I'm doing when they enter the battlefield. Like they're right. tapping down my creatures or returning them to my hand or letting you draw a card. And that also allows you to get a few blue spells to counter uh, what may be in a lot of other decks, which I think is extremely beneficial and kind of what makes that deck a little bit stronger for a base level deck. Yeah, for sure. Now, there's sort of... I wouldn't really call it a subtype of aggro, but it does fit in the aggressive play style, and that's something called a burn deck. So whereas aggro is typically creature-based, you want to play lots of creatures and overwhelm your opponent quickly, burn decks actually don't even mess around with creatures. They just play things like fireballs and lightning bolts, and you just want to burn, blow up your opponent's life total as fast as possible before they have a chance to do their game plan. You also have... The archetype we've talked about earlier the combo deck and typically the combo deck ignores what your opponent is doing they're looking for interaction between two three maybe sometimes four cards that let them very quickly run away with the game so it could just be something that lets you gain uh infinite life there are infinite loops in magic sometimes you deal infinite damage uh sometimes you make infinite number of little one one creatures Whatever the particular combo is, combo decks don't really care about what your opponent's doing. You just want to get your cards out of the field, do your combo, and at that point you've won the game. Now Some there's of the limiting factors ahead. on combo decks uh, are, are the rules that are placed on decks. Uh, you're only allowed to have four of the same card, correct? Correct, yes. Except for lands. Except for basic lands. Um, and that allow you know, it, it, it's harder to get your combo. So a lot of combo decks use... Uh, search cards, cards that allow you to go through your deck uh, and look for a certain card and put it into your hand or onto the playing field uh, or, or let you draw through a bunch of cards at the same time to try try and get those specific cards that you are looking for. Yes, finding your combo pieces is very important to combo decks and cards that enable you to find those combo pieces are very crucial and often the subject of discussion of you know, should this card be banned or not, because they enable combos in that manner. Um, and you bring a, a good point when you mention search cards. So Magic kind of has this tradition of naming card types after the name of the card that did it first or made that effect famous. So one of the first search cards that was printed was Demonic Tutor. And so people usually call that effect, any similar effect that lets you search for a particular card out of your library, a tutor effect. Much like, uh, you know, a burn spell uh, is anything that deals damage directly to a player because you know, some of the first cards that did that were like fireballs or, or burn-related things. Right, and so yeah, on. yeah, absolutely. So between these three archetypes, aggro, control, and combo that we've mentioned, 
there are other archetypes that basically serve as a mix between the two and maybe have a more balanced game plan. So you have the mid-range deck style, which basically looks to play just good cards. You, you look at two or three colors and you pick like some of the best cards that give you the most value per card played. And it's usually a suite of removal, creatures, maybe some counter spells. And the goal is you just use your cards really effectively, and every card you play is just slightly better than a card, you know, somewhat your opponent is playing. And through good decisions and just sort of like value grinding, you end up in control of the game and can win. And then you have the tempo deck, which is sort of a mix of aggro and control where you have some counter spells to interrupt your opponent's game plan. But instead of going, you know, full counter and just sitting back and doing nothing on your turn, you maybe play a creature or two or have some enchantment in play or something like that that applies pressure to your opponent where you're basically saying, hey, if you don't do something, I'm going to win in the next couple turns. And then you have enough support to kind of stop them from doing anything about your win condition. So now that we've talked about deck types is there anything else you wanted to mention there no i i I think you covered it all pretty well i mean there are those main types that you can pretty much fit every deck into uh that due to the nature of the cards and 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 their mechanics and how they're supposed to be played yeah more or less any deck will fit into one of those categories loosely so we've talked about deck types we ought to talk about game formats So because Magic has been around for a very long time, there's all kinds of different ways to play the game. And some of them arise just from, you know, fans and players of the game looking for kind of unique ways. Maybe you want to, you have three friends and you want to play a game. Um, Also at the competitive level and from Wizards of the Coast perspective, there are often incentives and reasons to have these different formats because you still want people to purchase your new product, but you don't want to have to follow the Yu-Gi-Oh process of just printing progressively better and better cards until eventually your game breaks. So you have to kind of have a way to segment things. So the formats we'll cover fall into two broad categories, and the first is constructed formats, which are where players assemble a deck and a sideboard according to whatever format rules they're going to be playing in, and they bring that deck to the event. So they have a collection, they assemble a deck, they bring that deck in to the tournament, and that's what they play while they're there. There's also limited formats, which is where you are given some number of booster packs, and you assemble a deck on the spot from those booster packs. So that kind of limited falls into really two formats. Uh, There is a sealed format, where you're given six packs, you open them all, those are your cards you have to work with. You build a smaller deck of 40 cards from those six packs, and that's what you play with. Draft is a little more interesting. You're, each player is given three packs, and you sit down at a table with seven other players. You open pack one, you pick a card from it, and then you pass to the next player. So this sort of gives you access to maybe more cards within your game plan, but other people at your table could also be trying to play that game plan. So there's all this extra decision-making like, oh, is someone else picking my color? Should I switch strategies? What am I going to get in the next pack? I don't know. So there's sort of this really like back and forth kind of read the table vibe going on. Absolutely. And uh, how many cards are in each pack? 
This uh, that is a tough one. So I it, I think it's fifteen, uh, and then the fifteenth card is like a ba- is a land of some kind. Okay. Yeah. So or maybe so, it's fourteen, and the fourteenth is a land. There's quite a few. But it, th- there is a larger pool of cards for you to be able to pull from to create this deck. So it's not like oh you know there's only you know red and green, and there's not enough for it to go around the whole way in the draft so you're just kind of like stuck with terrible cards yeah it is kind of this weird thing if you if you read the table correctly and other people aren't necessarily if there aren't a bunch of people all trying to pick the same colors or strategy as you there are enough cards for you to assemble like 40 playable you know have have a playable deck of 40 cards um but something people will talk about a lot is uh, you know, sometimes, obviously, the power level of your draft deck is going to be nowhere near a constructed deck. But sometimes you're like, man, like I don't even have, you know, forty playable cards. What do I put in my deck? I guess I'm playing all five colors because I, you know, drafted so poorly. Right. right. Uh, <clears throat> but that's part of the fun is trying to get a read on the table and and, and everything like that. Absolutely. Um, and then so uh, moving back to constructed. Um, so there are a, a set number of official constructed formats uh, that are playable, whether that be you know at your like Friday Night Magic or, or Pro Level or w- whatever it happens to be. Um, so we'll start with Standard. This is the set of most recent cards. So what Wizard has released the most recently, uh, that set is all the cards that fall in that set are, are, are playable. Um, this is typically the most publicized, advertised, uh, easy to promote new product, uh, and that's what this 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 playset does. This format does is promote those cards. Yeah, this is the one. Wizards, I don't want to say I don't want to say they're less excited about other formats, but this is maybe the one that's most important to their bottom line, because these are the cards they are actively selling essentially, and so they want this format to be really balanced and enjoyable at all times. Right, right. Uh, This format includes the last block, the most recent core set, and then the current block. Um, Because it is all current cards, uh, which haven't been, you know, playtested by the community thoroughly and very significantly, it's typically the most low power format, and it's typically uh, also the cheapest, uh, because once you get into these, these older sets where you know which cards are strong, you know which decks are good, uh, which types of decks are good? Those cards typically move up in price, and you can't get them uh, at, through packs or whatever. You have to buy them uh, as the individual card by itself, and that's typically significantly more expensive. And it it is the cheapest at the time. There is sort of a caveat in the sense that standard formats rotate. So with the release of new sets, the older ones are no longer legal and standard anymore. So, to buy, purchase a standard deck at at this point moment in time would be cheaper than a modern deck or a legacy deck, but you couldn't play that standard deck a year from now or right. two years from now, depending on what it's composed of. So, like technically, like staying in standard isn't necessarily the cheapest option. But as a one-off, yes. as a single purchase, it is typically the cheapest. Uh, in standard, it also they they try to balance issues that were in the recent past. So it makes changes to uh, 
you know, previous cards or tries to eliminate certain combos or tries to change spells or whatever it may be that, that may have been unbalanced previously. And they have had... So currently, the current standard format, in my opinion, is very good. It's pretty well balanced. It's a lot of fun to play. Uh, in recent past, they have had some balance issues. And this is a big problem for Wizards because really the only way they can balance a set after it's released is to ban certain cards. But if it is a set you are currently trying to sell and promote, banning a card looks really bad. And at some point, there's been a couple of, uh, a couple of sets, and I'm, I'm drawing a blank on the name. It's the one with all the energy. Uh, Ixal, or not Ixalan. Um, uh, well, what you can look up the set is pretty recent. Uh, and they had to ban like three or four cards that were in that standard format. And so when you were buying new packs, there was like a significant chance that the rare you were going to open in the pack was banned and you couldn't use it in <laughs> standard, which is not a great situation for them to be in. Yeah, that is definitely uh, problematic towards towards players. So uh, the next official constructed format is Modern. Uh, and so these are cards from the 8th edition on. So 8th edition to now, which would be 2003 is when 8th edition was released. Um, so this is, a, this is a massive pool of cards, right? We have 16 years, 16 years plus of sets being released. So huge, huge um, amount of cards there. Uh, it is the most popular format. Uh, due to the amount of cards you have to pull from and all the different deck building options you have. Uh, and it's obviously uh, has longevity because you have all these cards to play from uh, and it continues on. Yeah, those cards are always good. Uh, Modern is home to something called the turn four rule. And essentially because you have access to so many cards, some of the most competitive decks can close the game by turn four and so if you're playing a deck like a combo deck or something and you can't do your combo by turn four there's a chance that you're just dead in the water against you know another hyper aggressive deck or, or combo deck if you're if it takes you five or six and you don't interact with your opponent at all to reveal your win condition you're probably too slow to compete at a high level Absolutely, yeah. These are some pretty powerful decks you see. Well, you don't necessarily, but there are quite a few combo decks that are uh, pretty brutal. And there's been a few high-profile bannings in Modern as well. There is a Modern ban list. It's really not that big, all things considered. But every now and then, a deck breaks out that's really, really strong. And for one reason or another, uh, they step in and they ban a certain card. Perhaps the most infamous uh, is the Splinter Twin banning. Even now, if you go look at any Magic Forum, any ban list discussion, etc., etc., people will be moaning about unban twin, unban twin. That's a very political discussion that I won't pick a side on. But chances are, if you're you know even in the Magic community casually, you've heard about the Splinter Twin ban. So the next uh, official constructed format is Legacy, which is also known as the Eternal format. Uh, in this format, most cards are legal with the only the extreme most powerful ones being banned. Uh, because of this, there are typically extremely fast games. Uh, can end in the first few turns, whether through combos or 
or some extremely powerful cards. Uh, as, as we mentioned earlier, blue is the strongest color, which it has fairly consistently been uh, throughout a lot of magic, uh, and it continues on when you have you know, almost all of the cards being allowed. Yeah, blue is the strongest color in a lot of early printings and early sets of magic. And so when you're playing in these eternal formats like Legacy, where all the cards are legal, essentially, uh, those really powerful blue cards are still very much a part of the metagame. And so if you're not, you have to have a very good argument for why you're not playing blue in your Legacy deck. And, and because of this, because, uh, you know, it's cards that have expanded almost all of Magic, uh, there's a really high card cost because there's, you know, limited amount of cards. You can't, like, go out and buy a pack of the original set anymore. Um, so these cards are expensive, and they can be quite rare. Yeah, some of these cards haven't been printed since 1996, you know. So the, the cost of getting to hold uh, getting a hold of a playset of these cards is hundreds of dollars, and that's that's a pretty big barrier to the format. Absolutely. Uh, I think one of the most famous cards, probably Black Lotus. Um, massively expensive card, e even in the early days of Magic. Uh, as it was so powerful. Yeah. Now, of course, that card is banned in Legacy, yes. but there are a lot of cards of similar vintage that are, you know, almost at that level of expense. Essentially. Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. Black Lotus, probably one of the most famous bands. So you, you mentioned Black Lotus, and that's a good segue into the this next, really the final official constructed format, Vintage. Uh, so this is very similar to Legacy, except it doesn't ban uh, Black Lotus and, and the other Power 9 cards, the other most powerful cards from the very first printing of Magic. Those cards are restricted to one copy per deck rather than being banned. Um, and really the only things that are banned are uh, anti-cards and what they refer to as physical dexterity cards, which involve rules text were basically like you could flip the card and if it landed and touched other cards it would destroy them lots of just weird kind of game breaking rules and so these any cards kind of bring up an interesting point about magic uh when it originally started uh, and and through a good chunk uh of its beginning stages uh, a game was typically played uh in a sense uh with gambling um, someone would put up an anti-card uh, e each player would put up an anti-card and whoever won the match would take that card. Uh, and then so as, as it started to gain more popularity, parents and other people, and uh, you, you know, you, you typically mention parents here because it's younger people playing this game. And, and so when, when there are younger people in the community, you kind of have to be aware of this gambling issue. Uh, and so they, they did have to remove anti-cards and cards that affected the anti-cards um, eventually at some point. So that way they weren't, you know, promoting gambling to young children who are entering the community. Definitely. And much like Legacy, and really even more so than Legacy, because these Power 9 cards are not banned, these ultra-rare Black Lotus-type cards are not banned, you basically need to include them in your deck if you wish to be competitive. And so the cost of building a vintage deck is kind of... It's basically absurd. It's this extremely high cost... It's a huge barrier of entry, and so there aren't even any official vintage tournaments in paper anymore. Really, the only vintage play is online on the Magic the Gathering online program, or MTGO, and it's mostly played 
by your old school pros and then some pro players who kind of have money or incentive to be involved in the format. So there's a couple of key uh, non-competitive, and I say non-competitive, actually, since we've we've uh, decided to do this episode, Popper has been played at a uh, Grand Prix, a, a competitive Magic event. So may have to change these notes here. But the next format is Popper, where the only cards that are legal are cards that were once printed at Common. This was originally a fan-based, a fan-started format. It started on Magic the Gathering online. Eventually, Wizards recognizes it and adds it as a supported format on an MTGO, so it'll filter your cards for you, and you can join specific popper rooms. And the goal of this format is just for it to be cheaper for people, because common cards were printed at you know higher numbers, and they're more available, and because there typically aren't a lot of common cards that are good in the other competitive formats, the cost of these cards isn't being driven up as high. So this is this could be like a cheap entry format for you to get into. Uh, another one of the famous uh, non-competitive formats is Commander, for, formerly known as Elder Dragon Highlander or EDH. And the reason it has that Highlander name is because you can only have one copy of a card besides basic lands in your deck. You must build a deck of at least 100 cards, and then you have a legendary creature that serves as your commander, and you can cast your commander at any time. And so it's sort of this ultra-casual multiplayer format where you can't really have a consistent deck because you're only allowed one copy and you have to have 100 of them. The goal is to just have basic synergy with this legendary commander. Sit around a table with a bunch of your friends and have a good time. There's a ton of other important formats to mention, and we won't get into the rules of all of them. Uh, Penny Dreadful is one we've talked about already. It's an MTGO-only format where the only legal cards are cards that cost one cent. A very budget option. It's a lot of fun to play. Uh, Two-Headed Giant is a multiplayer format. Brawl, Frontier, Tribal Wars, you can look them up. There's, a, there's dozens of formats out there. So if you had to recommend someone who is just getting into Magic... If they wanted to pick up the game and they wanted to go play with people, didn't necessarily have friends uh, immediately around them to to get decks and play with, what, what would you recommend? What format, uh, barrier, you know, cost entry? What what are we looking? Sure. At? Uh, so I think the qualifiers you mentioned were incredibly important. So if it's just someone on their own and they don't have a friend group and they're wanting to just jump in and figure out the game, uh, really the best way to do it is through the Magic Arena program because it is free to play. And it's a very well-supported program, and it looks nice and all that. And so that means you are playing Standard. And Standard is usually pretty newcomer-friendly because you don't have to know a huge pool of cards. And it's typically a slightly slower pace of game. So it's not you don't lose by turn three if you do something wrong. Outside of that, if you're opposed to Arena for whatever reason, Penny Dreadful is a very budget way to get into the game. Um, but you do sort of have to have a bigger knowledge of the card base and be willing to research and build decks. So that's maybe not a good newcomer-friendly one. So a lot of like comic stores or game stores or whatever have Friday Night Magic. Um, and so if you're looking to kind of get involved there, get in the community, what, what are you looking at? What styles, what formats are being played, and what, what should you look at doing? So it'll sort of depend on your store, but typically the two that are really supported 
are going to, in terms of constructed formats, are going to be standard and modern. Most stores will have Friday Night Magic, or we will have both of those there on Friday nights, in addition to other nights of the week. They will also pretty frequently have a draft format, which can be a fun way to play if you don't have a big collection of cards. And then outside of that, uh, Legacy is not very common because there aren't as many Legacy players in the casual scene. Um, some places will have a Commander Night, and Commander can be a casual, more social experience if that's what you're interested in. Uh, and there's plenty of support if you don't really know the card pool and just want to get in that you know, you can go online and find commander decks for virtually any play style or, or, or commander that you're interested in. Absolutely. I think Arena is a great way to learn the game, to kind of get into it. Uh, you know, it's free, easy to get to. Uh, constructed uh, decks, definitely, definitely. I think, the, the way to go originally before you have a good knowledge of the game. Because once you get into limited with draft and sealed... Uh, there's a lot of strategy, and you have to have a good knowledge of cards and kind of what you're looking at, and in a good mind to build strategy with. Um, so, so construct I think is definitely the way to go uh, for beginners. Although the the limited with draft and sealed can be extremely fun. Yeah, I think I think you hit hit the nail on the head. Probably the easiest way for you to learn the game and not be at a massive disadvantage for not knowing the card pool is to play standard constructed format. And Magic Arena does a really good job if they give you sort of pre-built decks as you get started in the game. And their matchmaking does a really good job of if you're playing one of those, you get matched against someone else who's also playing them. So you're not going to be playing against someone who has all these crazy rare cards. Absolutely. That's probably your best bet. Yeah, that's that's definitely something I've realized as I've gotten into Arena. Even though I may have a decent knowledge of the game um, and, and, and may you know, have some good strategy or whatever, because I don't have a good pool of cards yet, I, I'm still being matched against people who are playing with, like, generally the same level of cards, the same level of deck. So it's not like I'm getting crushed because I just haven't built up cards yet. Right. And that's, that's you know, just a nice bonus. That's It's a really good marketing decision and a really good way to get people into the game. Yeah, definitely something that makes Arena great. So talking about Arena and getting into these online... Uh, formats. We we'll, we'll start it out with MTGO. Um, does not have a good reputation, to say the least. Yeah. So this is uh, formerly known as well. You'll hear a lot of the old schoolers call it Moto, or because the original name was Magic Online with digital objects, which is a really pretty boring lame. name, and it's yeah. a pretty good setup for what playing MTGO is like. Absolutely. So there's this really intense love-hate relationship between MTGO and the Magic community for most of its life because there were a lot of downsides to it. Uh, it was visually dated really even upon release. Uh, you mentioned earlier it was <laughs> its last major update was in 2008, which as of this podcast was 11 years ago. And that update was delayed by almost two years. So... It looks really old. I, I kind of find the looks like charming in a way, but in the age of a lot of digital CCGs like Hearthstone and everything else, like it, it looks That's exactly what I was about uninteresting. To say. It, it, if if you're looking for Hearthstone, if you're looking for that fun, those animations, that color, the sounds, not happening on MTGO. It is it is magic and that is it. There is no fluff. You do everything through context menus, 
and it's just a little digital representation of the card. And you mentioned sound. The MTGO sounds are infamously like some of the worst noises you have ever heard. Yeah. It's um, in addition to, to all that pleasant visual appeal, uh, it's also very buggy. Uh, and they have some serious issues where there was a lot of high-profile crashes during organized play. So MTGO is used for an online tournament series. And sometimes it's pretty important. It means qualification for the pro tours and that sort of thing. Uh, and they've actually had just MTGO crash during those organized play events. Um, as I mentioned, the update progress is very slow. New versions and features kind of trickle out way later than people expect them to. They're delayed. There's some that people feel like are just never coming. Another big issue with it is the only way to acquire cars is to purchase them with real money. Now, technically, these digital cards are connected to physical cards through this weird set redemption system. But essentially what you need to know is if you're going to buy a pack of magic cards, it costs you the same amount to go to the store and buy the physical pack as it does to buy a digital representation. And that can be a turnoff for some people. Absolutely. Uh, the it's art, also the art is such a big part of a lot of magic and cards. You know, people collect cards purely for the art, um, and, and, and having that physical card is kind of a bit of like what makes trading card games kind of cool too. So the the fact that you know that is how it is is kind of definitely can be a turnoff. Yeah, and plus, you know, it's not like it's cheaper playing online you don't even get the real card it could go up and smoke at any moment but like you still have to pay exactly for yeah it. um it's also kind of infamous for having uh toxic players um i haven't encountered too many of them myself but uh, to be honest this is you know there's toxic people in the magic community and really uh any online game is going to have salty people yeah you you play any any sort of online game you know it's going to happen plus when you take into uh, account that the vast majority of people who play Magic uh, are on the younger male demographic, uh, you know, like 25, 30 below. Uh, that that doesn't necessarily lend itself to, you know, sunshine and niceness. Yeah, they're not the king of social graces, typically. Um, and it's kind of tying into the money thing again. You have to actually pay money to make an account to buy cards on MTGO. It's 10 bucks to make an MTGO account in 2019 in the era where, you know, every game is free to play. You can make an account and try it out for free. And then they try to sucker you in with incentives and transactions. Like wizards didn't even do that. Right. They were like, Oh no, you have to pay to even download and try our game. Yeah. There's definitely quite a few barriers to starting on MTGO. And so because of all these issues, there's sort of this conspiracy theory that Wizards of the Coast actually didn't even want MTGO to be successful when they were setting out to make it and, and develop it because they were afraid this would have a big impact on their physical card sales. And so they didn't really want it to be that good because then they couldn't push the paper cards. And as of the release of Magic Arena, there's a lot of questions about, well, is MTGO still going to be around? You have this new flashy system that is only standard at the moment. It doesn't support any of the other formats, but it's so much better than MTGO in every respect that people are kind of like, well, why would I buy cards on MTGO? Like, isn't Arena the future? So there's sort of this weird back and forth going on. 
So after all that list of bad things, you might be asking yourself, well, why does anyone play MTGO? How has it been around for 15 years, 17 years? Uh, and so there are some pros, and I have played MTGO myself and have enjoyed it, so it's not all bad. Uh, in general, these digital cards, when you, you can actually purchase just uh, the cards you want. You don't have to purchase packs through other players and bots trading. And so the digital cost of cards is typically much cheaper than the real-life counterparts uh, by a factor of 4, or 5, 10 sometimes. It's pretty extreme. So you can build and test decks and play online for much cheaper. Um, the card availability is also really nice. Like you just go, you just buy it from a bot and it's delivered to your account and you're done. Whereas sometimes searching for these rare cards might require you to go through a bunch of different online storefronts and then maybe you're shipping in these $100 cards in the mail and you hope the USPS doesn't lose it and it takes a week to assemble a deck, etc. Uh, and hands down, it is the best way to practice magic. Um, it gives you a really good understanding of, of the phases of the game and how they interact. And you can play from home at a reasonably competitive level at any time. You don't need to wait till Friday night. You don't have to sit down, set aside six or seven hours of your day to play in a tournament. Whenever you have free time, you can sit down and play. You can microwave your Hot Pockets and eat at the same time. And it supports all the formats. So real-life tournaments of Legacy and Vintage are really rare because of this card cost and availability, but they're actually still pretty popular on Magic Online because that's less of an issue. Yeah, you don't have to deal with that card rarity and extremely high cost. Yeah, I mean, you know, they're still more expensive for MTGO cards. Absolutely. Um but yeah, it's a fraction of what they cost in real life. You aren't paying and, like $15,000 for a Black Lotus card. Right. Um, and if there's like only 200 people that play Vintage, uh, their chances are they're not all going to be within driving range of your local store, but they can all be online. So it's easier to get into a game. So that's kind of a good lead-in. We were talking about there's some uncertainty about how long MTGO will be around and if it's worth investing in because of Wizard's new program, Magic the Arena, which you've had some experience with. Absolutely. So I have not played MTGO. Uh, I, as a more casual player than player one here, I think uh, the, the cost barrier, first of all, the $10 and then having to buy cards and not knowing you know what format I wanted to get them in and blah, blah, blah. Uh, definitely prevented me from playing MTGO. I didn't want to spend that kind of money on something that I may not play super consistently or always have the time for. Uh, but with the release of Magic Arena, which I, th I think we can call Wizards of the Coast Hearthstone. Um, uh, it's better than Hearthstone in my oh, mind. But yeah, I, yeah, yeah I, th it's... I think Magic is better than Hearthstone in general, but uh, w Hearthstone was released first. It has some of the same feel with animations and stuff. Uh, but it's it is, certainly it is intended to directly compete with games of the like of hearthstone and uh, uh was it artifact and that kind of yeah thing. absolutely absolutely so with the release of magic arena and it being completely free to play you you can pay to buy packs if you want but you don't have to it's still pretty easy to earn packs and earn cards and work through that uh this is definitely a great way for me to get back into magic um, so this was a serious attempt by wizards of the coast to make magic a high profile e-sport Hearthstone uh, definitely got there, uh, and so this was this was Wizards of the Coast saying 
magic is better let's do it like we can make this an amazing esport uh that has a ton of popularity yeah they're having a million dollar promotional tournament at pax east they're like sponsoring all these streamers high profile streamers to stream the game they're really trying to you know get into the modern esport crowd absolutely which you know there's a ton of money in that area right now so it's a great place to be in to try to get to um, so it is a flashy, graphically appealing program, directly contra- contrasting to MTGO. Uh, there's fun animations with the cards. There's good, like, satisfying noises when you play cards. Uh, it, it, it feels really good. It's smooth. Uh, it, it just, it, it's a really great experience while you're playing it. It's not just, like, you know having to right click and click through, like, four different little menus to get to what you want on the card like it was in the MTGO. Um, so right now it only supports standard format, uh, like Seth uh, Player One was talking about previously, uh, with constructed and limited. Um, so there are arena tournaments that are a part of the official Pro Tour schedule uh, for the first time, and they will be broadcasted uh, over the internet, which I'm sure will be massive for Magic. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. So uh, Magic Pro Tournaments and Grand Prix have been streamed on Twitch and on other various mediums for a pretty long time, actually. You can even go watch like old YouTube VODs of like the 97. For a while, it was actually, back in the early days, it actually made it onto ESPN2. Yeah, absolutely, um, yeah. Which is wild. But it was always in paper form, and that can be tricky to watch if you're not familiar with the content because you can't actually read the cards. And, and sometimes they've gotten better about having overlays. And now t- there's this really good application like Twitch overlays and stuff that make it easier. But with Arena, you have the opportunity to make things like really, really good and a little more visually exciting. But no one knows what this is going to look like yet. We're not sure what it's going to look like when you have the... Are they going to sit a- across from each other on computers and play? Like, you know, no one knows what this is going to, you know end up being yeah and this is this is uh a a new age quote-unquote of magic right you're going from these in-person tournaments at conventions or walking around with a deck playing on you know these paper cards with friends in person with that social aspect um so this could theoretically be the death of these these in-person cards these paper cards the the paper magic could go away with the advent of arena Um, in my opinion i don't think it ever will there may be a decreased popularity, you know, it may not be uh, as heavy as it once was due to the free-to-play nature, uh, but part of trading card games is the card, you know, owning it, that paper, having that that experience. So I, I don't think it'll ever completely go away. Yeah, I mean, I think you maybe dichotomize a little bit where you your casual fans are no longer occasionally buying the paper product, Um but your really hardcore people are still into it because it's still something that allows you to like sit down at a table with someone and play. Um, but it does bring up a lot of interesting questions. Like you don't have to worry about any issues of like cheating or like card availability. If it's all digital, like it's there and it goes by the rules and like that's that. Um, but of course, anytime there's, you know, new or big changes, people can have some concerns or, you know, they're looking forward to it, but they're also worried about some things. So some people are worried that this could also have a significant impact on the design of future magic cards. So there's already been one instance of a card that has a triggered ability where you get to decide if you use it or not. 
But since it's in Magic Arena, and this is a trigger that happens very frequently over the course of the game, it's anytime you gain life, you can choose to activate this ability, that they decided to make it retroactively change it where it always triggers. You don't have a choice anymore, it just does it. And so that means it doesn't pop up a button you know, multiple times a turn asking right. you yes or no, because it's, it's, it's typically a beneficial effect, almost always. So they just say, oh, we assume yes, and you go. But it is possible to arbitrarily construct this convoluted scenario where you actually don't want this effect to go off. And so now you no longer have that choice. And so some people are kind of up in arms about it and saying like, oh, like you just took away a decision from people. You've lowered the skill ceiling. You've reduced the strategic depth of the game. Is this the future? Are all that new cards we see getting designed going to be kind of dumbed down so you don't have to click as many times? Based towards arena, based towards you know keeping that speed of play, and, and probably in some minds, based towards casual players. Yes, and that's something that people uh, maybe complain about already because there is a pretty significant difference in the way you play like a standard format versus the way you play Legacy. Like, Legacy, you're always worried about a counterspell and removal and, like, the interaction. Uh, and, like, standard and, and even sometimes modern is a little more, like, play your big creatures, goldfish your combo or whatever. Um, and people are afraid that there's going to be less complexity and interaction in new sets because it makes it more appealing to uh, casual players. Although I think that's mostly unfounded uh, thus far. I don't want to jinx anything. Yeah, yeah. I, I I haven't experienced too much of it yet. I think they've done a pretty good job with it, but it, being as it has just recently started, it will be very, very curious to see how, how they, they plan on keeping that in the future and what they, what they do with that. So moving into the story of Magic, and, and this is something that maybe a lot of more casual players don't realize. Um, I know I personally didn't know uh, kind of the the fact that you were a planeswalker and you were summoning these creatures and spells uh, existed when I first got into Magic. Uh, so there is a storyline, there is a plot uh, that runs behind most of Magic, especially now, uh, not as much in the beginning. Uh, that that these these characters, these creatures, these planeswalkers uh, all have a plot that they're all based off, and these cards and sets are based off that plot. Uh, and each new one that's released continues along with it. Um, so we're just going to do a quick overview because it can get pretty, pretty crazy. Um, so the magic story is set in multiple worlds referred to as planes, hence planeswalker, people who can you know, walk between these worlds. Um, so they differ from each other in inhabitants, geography, you know, anything that you can imagine is in a world, to, you know, it, it differs through these different planes. Um, in, in game turns, these sets, uh, each one that's released is typically associated with a certain mechanic or tribe, uh, or group of people. Um, so the, the card game represents each player as that planeswalker, like I was talking about. So starting with the Weatherlight expansion, uh, is kind of where we start to get this modern magic plot line. Um, it's a character driven story, typically following this set of planeswalkers, um, and, and then with their help, they they fight some sort of, of monster, specifically in this one, Yogmoth and his army of Frexians in, in the Weatherlight expansion. Um, yeah, Yogi boy. Yeah. Uh, after that, we move into a new set, Odyssey and Scourge, 
which are set in Dominaria, uh, which is something that as we move along, they kind of pull away from. Uh, this is kind of an unconnected storyline that's like a hundred years later, off into the future. Now, Dominaria is sort of the home plane of magic, and this is the realm that the sets revisit maybe most frequently. It's one of the more popular settings for the game. Absolutely. They do come back and touch on it a lot. Um, it, it's something that is revisited consistently, uh, even though they kind of moved away from it here at the beginning. Um, so next we have the Miroden uh, uh, set, um, and the, the world was split into five magically and culturally distinct shards, but later reunited. At this time, the Time Spiral block was also released, uh, which is where we get some more Dominarian Planeswalkers, try to prevent some time rifts. Uh, next, we move into Zendikar, uh, which is a world that is being used as a prison to entrap a, a race of interplanar parasitic monsters called Eldrazi, uh, which is based off uh, Lovecraftian stories. Um, after Zendikar, we, we go back to Mirrodin. Uh, we revisit it with, there's some natives fighting the Frexians, which we mentioned earlier. Um, and then next, we're moving into Innistrad, uh, which is one of the first ones I kind of learned about, a deck that you had, had some, some of the people that were seen on Innistrad on it, and yeah, honestly kind of uh, one of my favorites, just because I experienced it first, and it was pretty cool, all the characters and stuff. Um, so this I is think a... thematically and, and stylistically, Innistrad's one of the strongest sets. Uh, Absolutely, it's, yeah. It's very vampire, werewolf, kind of that genre of, I want to say horror, there is a good word for it, though. Gothic horror, I think, is yes. a good way to describe yeah, yeah. it. Yeah. It's very gothic. Uh, so on Innistrad, the guardian angel has gone missing, uh, and darkness has started to consume the plane. And that's where you get these vampires and kind of this this, this real darkness and, and, and grittiness that uh, you don't always necessarily see. Um, next, we have Theros, which was basically Greek mythology. Uh, it pulls a lot, a lot of inspiration from that. Um Next, we move on to Tarkir, which is a plane where uh, dragons have long since died, and it was ruled by five clans. However, through time travel, time travel uh, that is completely reversed. The dragons haven't died, and they're now in control. Uh, then we return to Zendikar, uh, which has been ravaged by Eldrazi uh, whores. And, and, and in the battle for Zendikar... Uh, we get a change in how magic's uh, storytelling, kind of the way they go about it, uh, it has a has a massive shift. Uh, each block story is shown uh, from the perspective of these main characters, which are planeswalkers, uh, known as the Gatewatch. And this is where we th this shift really changes pretty much everything about the story. Uh, we're following now these main protagonists, where in each of the previous sets, it was just kind of a one-off story. It may be connected, uh, maybe revisiting old places, uh, but it was it was different protagonists, it was different antagonists. Now we have a very cohesive plot following these set of planeswalkers called Gatewatch. Uh, we return to Innistrad uh, for a set with these with these Gatewatch uh, planeswalkers, um, and then. We, we follow the Gatewatch to uh, Chandra Nalar, main antagonist, homeworld uh, of Kaladesh. 
Um, and then we move on to Amonkhet. Kaladesh. The... That's the set I couldn't remember earlier. Okay, okay. That's the one where they had to ban lots of cards. Uh, <laughs> all right. Uh, next, we move on to Amonkhet, uh, which has the Gatewatch uh, destroy an evil dragon planeswalker called Nicol Bolas. Uh, n- you know, let me know if I'm saying any of these names wrong, because I'm sure I'm pronouncing all of them uh, incorrectly. Yeah, you've had a few weird vowels in there. I think Nicol Bolas is how they, in quotes, say it. Okay. No okay. guarantees that's any more correct. Right, than, right, uh, right. What you say. names, I mean, who knows, man. They're all all up to interpretation. And this is kind of where we get our main antagonist. Nicol Bolas is now uh, th- the, main, the main baddie uh, that we're seeing fighting Gatewatch. Um, after Amonke, we move on to Ixalan. Uh... And then after that, we return to Dominaria, uh, which is the first time that they have returned to Dominaria in over a decade. Uh, so it was kind of a, a return to the roots there. And that is up to to present. And there is so much that goes into each one of those plot lines, but it was like a quick run through of what we're looking at. Yeah, as you can probably tell from, from Ben's explanation there, uh, it is a little convoluted. It's a little reminiscent of like a comic book. Anytime you try to have uh, a story that runs for over 25 years now, uh, I, well, I guess really they've only been doing the story since uh, Weatherlight, so less than 25. But e- either way, things get a little convoluted, and they're trying different different styles to pull people in and get them interested in the story. So, most recent set that has been released is uh, The Return uh, to Ravnica. Uh, That's The Return to Return to Ravnica. You are correct. My apologies. This is our our third time visiting the Ravnica plane. Actually, the second time was was named Return to Ravnica, so the joke, Return to Return to Ravnica. (laughs) Uh, This is Magic's most beloved setting. Uh, in large part due to the 10 guilds. And when you kind of read more depth into the story, um, I definitely think you'll, you'll notice that. It is, uh, each of the guild is a, are a combination of two of the different colors that we've talked about previously uh, that are present with the lands and resources and magic. Uh, and the personality and play style of each guild is a pretty good uh, example of the way the color identities mix. So you can go through and get a basic overview of the story on, on the Magic the Gathering's website, uh, and it's a really cool read. It's almost like you're reading like a fantasy novel. It really draws you in. It's, it, it's definitely uh, a, a great setting that I've, I've loved, even though I've barely gotten into it. Yeah, Ravnica is statistically people's favorite setting in regards to Magic. And I, I do think a big part of that is, is the guild combination. Um, you have these 10 guilds that have you know pretty different personalities and different roles in the world of Ravnica, which is this giant planet-sized city, sprawling cityscape. And uh, like you mentioned, each one of these guilds is a very like textbook example of what any combination of two colors would look like. Um, and so it's also very interesting mechanically as well. And fortunately, uh, for the health of Magic and, and the success of Ma- Magic Arena, uh, this re- most recent set has been one of the most balanced and diverse standard formats uh, in several years. So 
you go back a few years where there are lots of standard bannings and then the last pro two or you know a year ago where there was essentially only one good deck that everyone was playing uh there's now four or five different possible highly competitive combinations and a bunch of fringe ones that are also relatively good and fun to play so that's made it a very a very good set absolutely and and like you mentioned ravnica is a world-sized city so the plane itself is literally only this entire city which is i think kind of a topic that you see a lot in sci-fi whether that's you know like a star wars planet where you you see it all as a city but but in this with their lore and stuff they kind of dive into it and i think that's something that that's pretty cool yeah and they've done a good job of they really are focusing on making the story more compelling. And so they've actually hired, you know, some some higher tier fantasy writers. In fact, Brandon Sanderson wrote uh, a little magic novella recently. Not set in Ravnica, it was set in Innistrad actually. But they've, yeah. they've really made an effort to make the uh, story content more compelling. Yeah, Brandon Sanderson, an author I think that we both really, really enjoy. And we'll probably have to maybe do an episode on here in the future. Uh, yeah, I'm sure uh, some of his books will get featured on here. Absolutely. Uh, so Ravnica, or Return to Return to Ravnica, is one of That's the right. most balanced and diverse standard formats uh, in a long time, like like you were mentioning earlier. And that's been pretty good for the, for the health of the game and the launch of Arena. And, you know, it's a good vehicle for getting people interested in the game. Absolutely. So... I think we would be remiss to talk about Magic and not mention the competitive scene and organized play at all, because it's a big part of Magic, and, and at some level this is what the card sets are designed around. So, Wizards of the Coast has had a system of organized play uh, since 97, I believe, um, was the date you were reading earlier. Yes. And... Uh, their system of competitive play also incorporates MTGO along with the standard paper tournaments. And it's kind of separate separated into like regional and pre-qualifying events. Plus, they have a, sort of a traveling Grand Prix uh, that'll be in different cities throughout the year. And based on your performance in these, and, and some of these are countrywide but there's also some that are in london and stockholm and international tournaments uh, these all contribute to player standings player rankings and the top players get invited to what's known as pro tour tournaments and they have one pro tour per set release and so they're referred to by the most recent set names so like the most recent pro tour was pro tour ravnica allegiance because that was the most recent set released and this is, you know, there's this is where the big prize money is. Um, this is typically where you, you know, people really tune in to see what decks people are playing. The system is changing very drastically at the moment with the introduction of MTG Arena and Wizards' push to be more of an eSport. So previously, there were sort of these weird incentives where if you would earn enough points playing in these Grand Prix and these Pro Tours... Uh, you would be considered like a gold level pro or a silver level pro or a platinum pro and you would have certain perks and um, the idea was that would be enough of a salary to encourage you to travel around to all these tournaments and maybe consider magic to be a part-time or full-time job. Um, there was a lot of dissatisfaction with that system and 
they're switching to something more closer to esports where a certain number of pro players are contractually obliged to stream the game MTG Arena during the week and appear at these pro events. They've also rebranded uh, the Grand Prix that are, are located around the country to uh, what's called Magic Fest. And instead of being a competitive event, these are more focused on being a convention. So while there is still a tournament, there's much less incentive for these paid pros to be there now. And now it's supposed to be more of if you're excited about any aspect of Magic, whether it's the story, whether it's the actual card game, whether you want to cosplay or like play Commander with your buddies, like this is supposed to meet the artists. This is supposed to be where you would go. Um, now, this Wizards of the Coast system has defined a pretty consistent base of pro players. Uh, there's a few. Uh, I would say there's probably 50-ish really well-known names. There's maybe 100 or 200 really consistent people you see in the Pro Tour and kind of have made a name for themselves as being a Magic Pro. In addition to the Wizard system, uh, there's an organization known as Star City Games, and they are the largest organizer of competitive play outside of Wizards of the Coast, at least here in the United States. And they have a tour as well and kind of a similar system where if you earn enough points at their normal tour tournaments, then you get invited to their big uh, biannual players championship, and that's where the big prize money is. Now, SCG uh, mostly tours in the east and the south. Uh, the furthest west they get is Dallas, Texas. In fact, they don't even come to Detroit. They do stop a couple places in Ohio, but it's mostly east coast, mostly the southeast. A lot of the SCG regulars, the guys who have made a name for themselves in the SCG circuit, don't typically play the Wizards Pro Circuit. Um, and part of that is just because a lot of those guys have, you know, full-time jobs and, and magic competing in magic is a hobby to them. Um, and they're just not ready to commit, you know, the amount of time that the uh, Wizards Pro Tour guys are committed to with streaming and that kind of thing. So that's mostly it for the competitive scene. Yeah, I think I think we've covered you know a ton, absolute ton on uh, on Magic, and it, it's definitely a game we're both playing right now. We're both still enjoying, uh, and it's evolved through time and really really kept itself going strong. Yeah, uh, it's obviously a game I really enjoy, and that's maybe why I've rambled so long about it. Um, if we were to close out. On Magic, I'd like to hear from you. What's what's your favorite deck? Maybe it doesn't have to necessarily be you know like the full deck list, but like what were some of the cards you thought were really cool? Maybe your favorite style of play, favorite archetype. What's the thing you enjoyed playing the most? Uh, I would say early on, I enjoyed you know the blue, uh, having that control, working through, just kind of like messing with the other other player. What was a lot of fun. Uh, as I've gotten into arena. I uh, started to learn a little bit more, really kind of understood what's going on. Uh, I, I, I would, I've enjoyed the Merfolk deck we, we mentioned previously, uh, just because it's been kind of fun to play around with. Uh, but if, if, if I really had to pick a style, I would definitely say the control uh, is where I like to sit, um, whether that's, you know, maybe, maybe a blue-white, uh, maybe even black-blue. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's, that's where I'm at. Okay, so I just want to clarify for the listeners here. 
Uh, you said earlier that blue was a very frustrating color for you to play against. Absolutely. And you, so what you're telling me is you saw that, and then you were like, I want to be that guy. I want to be the one who's frustrating people. I'm going to pick up blue. I want to play heavy control. It, it's so satisfying to just like thwart everything the other other player is trying to do. Uh, and then be able to just like you know play your cards like normal and and keep going. And in general, I would say that is a pretty rewarding archetype to play uh, because you can't. Oftentimes, you can't literally counter everything and remove everything. You, your deck won't win that way. So there are a lot of decisions on. Okay, is this threatening enough that I need to deal with it, or should I wait for something scarier? Um, Absolutely, and yeah. Sort of. And playing on the other guy's turn is is a fun. Thing that you can't really get anywhere else yeah for sure absolutely uh if you had to pick a a, a favorite format what, what would you say you enjoy playing the most well yeah that is tough i would i think i enjoy brewing decks in modern the most because there are so many cards to choose from, you can come up with all these really weird strategies and synergies. Um, and they're, you know, their cards aren't prohibitively expensive if you want to try to play it online or something like that. Uh, the one I play the most, though, would definitely be Standard right now, because Standard is really good, and I can I've built competitive decks for free through Magic Arena, and that's just a really good experience. Yeah, absolutely. I uh, know this episode may have gone a little long, but that's just because there's so much to cover with magic, and we really wanted to be able to include, you know, everything that's involved with it, and really convey, you know, how awesome of a game this is, and how much we enjoy it. Uh, so we really appreciate you guys listening in and sticking with us. Please feel free to check out our Twitter and Facebook at uh, Player One Bias. And of course, we always welcome your feedback. So if you like the topic, if you thought we talked too long think we didn't talk enough let us know and we're always looking for recommendations on new topics to cover so if there's something you want to hear us ramble about shoot us a message and this is player one and player two signing off again thank you guys so much yep thanks guys